0: Well, let me encourage you to take a Bible and to turn to Psalm 5. It's always helpful to have the text in front of you, both for yourself and also for the preacher, because then you can check that what the preacher's saying is actually in the Bible. So let me encourage you to turn to Psalm 5. It's page 544. And before we come to look at this together, let us pray. Our gracious God, we bow humbly in your presence. We ask that your written word would be our rule, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, and that your greater glory would be our chief concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In a lecture that he gave... Back in 2004, Professor Marcello Perà, a former president in the Italian Senate and a professed atheist, said this, a foul wind is blowing through Europe. This same wind blew through Munich in 1938. While the wind might sound like a sigh of relief, it is really a shortness of breath It could turn out to be the death rattle of a continent that no longer understands what principles to believe. Christianity is so consubstantial with Europe that if Christianity goes, everything good in European civilization goes with it. And as I contemplate the the events which have unfolded and our unfolding on the very doorstep of Europe I find myself pondering the question posed by David in Psalm 11 verse 3 where he asks if the foundations are destroyed what can the righteous do? In Psalm 11 David doesn't provide a fulsome answer to that question except to declare the Lord is in his holy temple The Lord's throne is in heaven, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. But here in Psalm 5, we have a fuller answer to that question with practical instruction as to what the righteous can do when the foundations are being shaken, as is undoubtedly the case in the days in which we are now living. We can't be exactly sure of the psalm's context but a number of the commentators believe it may have been composed during the time of Absalom's rebellion where David was deposed as king and driven out of the city of Jerusalem by none other than his own son. And that means that what David was facing here was nothing less than an existential crisis. Which was not just a personal threat to his own life, but was a threat to the future of the entire nation of Israel. Absalom was David's third son. You can read his story in 2 Samuel chapters 13 to 19. I don't have time to rehearse the details, but in some ways, Absalom reminds me of Boris Johnson, our erstwhile prime minister. When he was elected for the second time as mayor of London in 2012, the BBC made a documentary film called The Irresistible Rise. In it, they interviewed Boris's sister, Rachel, who said that as Boris was growing up, whenever anyone asked him what he wanted to be, he would answer, world king. And that was Absalom's ambition too. And for four years, he plotted and conspired against his own father in pursuit of that ambition to be king. He even persuaded his father's most trusted counselor, Ahithophel, to join the revolt. And such was the appeal of Absalom's charismatic personality that the conspiracy grew strong, the people with him kept increasing and ultimately the moment came for Absalom to make his bid for power. And such was the strength of the rebellion that David had to flee for his life. And this psalm, along with others, was penned by David during what for him was a critical period in his life, both for him and for the people. I want to suggest five things from each of the five stanzas that make up this psalm that we can learn for such a time as this. And the first is where we are to begin. And the place to begin is in the place of prayer. Because that's what David is doing here in this psalm, and in it he teaches us how to pray when the very foundations of our lives are being shaken. Notice how he describes his prayer in the opening verses. It consists in spoken words. Give ear to my words, O Lord. But it also includes broken words. Again, verse 1, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. This then is an impassioned prayer driven by the urgency of the situation in which he finds himself. Yet while David is distressed in his prayer, he is not disordered in his praying. And here David provides us with practical guidance as to the discipline of prayer. Notice when he prays, verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. I don't know how you begin the day, but there's something to be said, isn't there, for beginning the day with prayer? John Yates, who served as study assistant to the late John Stott, the author of many books including Basic Christianity and the Cross of Christ, observed how each day began for John Stott. He wrote, each morning, usually at 5 a.m., John swung his legs over the side of his bed, and before placing a foot on the ground, started the day, whenever possible, with a Trinitarian prayer. The prayer went like this. Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I worship you as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Lord Jesus, I worship you, Savior and Lord of the world. Holy Spirit, I worship you, sanctifier of the people of God. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God. Have mercy upon me. Amen. This is what David does. It's how he begins his day. And notice that David is not praying here to a distant stranger. He is speaking to the Lord. And when you see Lord in capital letters in the Old Testament, it's the personal name of God that is being used. It's the name of the one who entered into a covenant relationship with his people and who said, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And this is the God to whom David prays. He says at the end of verse 2, For to you do I pray, my king and my God. And what that's telling us is you can't pray to a God you don't know. But David tells us something else here, and again it's in verse 3. The NIV renders it like this. Morning by morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. Morning by morning, I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. The verb which is translated, lay my requests, means to set out in order, to arrange. To set in rows. It's used in the book of Leviticus. Of the priest arranging the wood on the altar fire. And then of arranging the chunks of the sacrificial animal on the altar. It's also used of arranging the showbread in two rows of six loaves each. On the table of the tabernacle. That's what David is doing as he comes to pray. He's ordering his prayer. He's laying out his request. And here's a challenge for each of us personally and individually, preacher included, as Christian believers. Because to be a Christian is to pray. It is one of the hallmarks of the person who by grace through faith belongs to Jesus Christ. But this is also a challenge for us collectively and corporately as Christian congregations. Tom Swanson was the minister of the West Church in Inverness for 20 years, from 1971 until his death in 1991. Over the course of his ministry, the members of his congregation received a monthly pastoral letter in which he expressed his hopes, his fears, his concerns for individuals and for the church. A selection of those letters was published after his death under the title, A Stranger in a Strange Land. In it, there are several letters on prayer. One of them is entitled, Public Intercessors Wanted. It was written in July 1975. And in it, Tom Swanson wrote this. He said, the organized church in our day, certainly in Western Christendom, is under the judgment of God. God is bringing her to an historic end for her infidelity and unbelief. Only the churches that pray together will survive the coming Holocaust. Those are strong words, and when he wrote them, I suspect very few would have believed him. But when you look at the Church of Scotland today, 45 years later, that's exactly what has happened. Membership has plummeted by 75%. Churches are closing left, right, and center. And unless God in his mercy sends a revival, the future is very bleak for the church of Scotland. And we should be careful not to be so presumptuous as to think that this could never happen to us. In another of his letters, Tom Swanson writes this, without prayer, without more prayers, nothing more can happen. This is the God-appointed way to blessing. Without it, there can be no reviving of the church's brightness. All new life begins, continues, and is ended in prayer. That is how God has ordained things. And we are very foolish if we think we know better. And here, in the midst of this existential crisis, in which the very foundations of the nation's life are being shaken, David turns first and foremost to God in prayer. He does so diligently, morning by morning. He does so methodically as he lays out his requests before the Lord. Where we are to begin, but let's move secondly to what we are to see. Last year, I read through the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin with a friend. John Calvin, who was based in Geneva, was one of the leading Protestant reformers of the 16th century. Here's how he opens what is his magnum opus. He says, the whole sum of our wisdom, wisdom that is, which deserves to be called true and assured, broadly consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. That's what David's unpacking for us here. And you can see these two things in verses 4 to 6. Knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Verse 4, our God is not a God who delights in wickedness. Verse 5, evil can never be a house guest with God. Verse 5, boastful or arrogant men will not stand in his presence because God is holy and righteous. God cannot tolerate sin. And these are not abstract concepts. In fact, these verses kind of explode the sentiment of God hating the sin yet loving the sinner because David says in verse 5, God hates all evildoers. Verse 6, he will destroy those who speak lies. He abhors not merely bloodthirsty deeds but bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Here then is a murderer and he's brought to stand before the judge. All the evidence is presented. The jury weighs it up. And when they return to the courtroom, the verdict is delivered and he is found to be guilty. The judge then says to the accused, you have been found guilty of murder and murder must be punished. So we will send the murderer to prison for a minimum of 20 years, but you can go free. That, of course, would be ludicrous. You can't have a murder without a murderer. You can't have lies without a liar. You can't have a crime without a criminal. You can't punish the sin without punishing the sinner. And God in being against sin is also against all who commit it. That's a warning to us all. Because those who love the things God hates and who don't repent of them will ultimately be condemned. Let me take you back to John Calvin and his statement about true wisdom consisting of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Here's how he continues. He says the purpose of the first of these, knowledge of God, is to show not only that there is one God whom all must worship and honor, but also that he is the fount of all truth, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, judgment, mercy, power, and holiness. That's what David sees here. But if the The purpose of the first part of true wisdom is to show us God. The purpose of the second part of true wisdom is to show us ourselves. It is, says Calvin, to show us our weakness, misery, vanity and vileness, to fill us with despair, distrust and hatred of ourselves and then to kindle in us the desire to seek God for in him is found all that is good and of which we ourselves are empty and deprived. And David sees this as he prays. He sees God in his holiness and he sees himself in his sinfulness. And if you don't see that, if you don't see that you are guilty, lost and helpless before a God who is holy and pure and righteous, you will never see your need of a saviour. David then shows us where we're to begin, what we're to see. And then thirdly, how we're to come. Verse 7, but I through the abundance of your steadfast love or your mercy will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. The pronoun here, but I, is emphatic. David has just testified the Lord hates evildoers and detests bloodthirsty and deceitful men, so we might expect him rather like the Pharisee in the temple to thank God he's not like these other men, but there's nothing of the kind. Because David knows he can only enter God's presence through the abundance of his steadfast love. In other words, David does not come on the basis of his own merit. He does not come on the basis of his own goodness. He comes by grace as every sinner must. You know how this song expresses it. Only by grace can we enter. Only by grace can we stand, not by our human endeavor, but by the blood of the Lamb. Into your presence you call us. You call us to come. Into your presence you draw us. And now, by your grace, we come but notice also David comes in fear I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you or in reverence before you and what an illustration that is of the nature of true worship in the first part of verse 7 we have the welcome and the friendship and the acceptance that unmerited grace extends but in the second part of the same verse we have the majesty and the kingship and the trembling that reverent fear produces And the two go together, glad welcome and reverent fear. We find the same combination in the worship of the early church. We're told in Acts chapter 2, for example, that when the believers met together, they did so with exuberant joy. But at the same time, their worship was never superficial or frivolous. On the contrary, Luke tells us, everyone was filled with awe and in their worship they exhibited this holy and healthy combination of joy and reverence and that's what you have here with David. He is lured by grace, yet sobered by fear. That's how we come to God in prayer and in worship. Where we're to begin, what we're to see, how we're to come, And that brings us, fourthly, to what we are to ask. This is where we come to David's petitions, to his requests. And there are three groups of people here for whom he asks. First of all, for himself. Look at verse 8, where he asks for himself, that God will guide him. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of your enemies, make your way straight before me. You know, or at least I hope you do, that this world is a wicked place. You know, or at least I hope you do, that there are people in this world who are implacably opposed to the gospel and who will go to any lengths to prevent its propagation. That, of course, is not an argument for retreat. We have to live in the world, but we are not to be of the world. And there's nothing in between. That's why James tells us friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we have a choice to make. The prophet Jeremiah puts it like this. He says, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. That's what David is asking for here when he says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. And you don't need me to tell you that in the world in which we live today, some of the choices we have to make are very complex. But again, James says to us, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. This is what David does here. For himself, living as he does in this wicked world, he prays God will guide him in righteousness. But what else does he ask? Well, look at verse 9 where he prays for his enemies. He prays that God will judge them. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out for they have rebelled against you. Would you pray as David does here? Or does it make you uneasy to pray like that? And yet when you think about it, you don't have any choice because the petition of verse 11 that God's people should enjoy security and safety can only be answered if at some point their enemies are taken out of the way. And friends, we need to realize that there are people in power today, even within our own nation, who have set themselves resolutely against God and his people. And it may not be very long before we find ourselves, as Christian people, facing the criminalization of various aspects of biblical teaching and gospel proclamation. The Scottish government, for example, is currently preparing legislation which will ban what they are calling conversion practices. And will criminalize those offering counseling or therapy to people who are same-sex attracted, even in situations where they have expressed a desire to follow a different path in order to walk in obedience to Christ. But the panel of experts advising the Scottish government has said, we believe that allowing for consent to conversion practices is a dangerous approach which will leave many people vulnerable to abuse. As a result, the legislation should be clear that it includes conversion practices with or without consent. The panel then goes on to say that where the perpetrator of any of the criminalised acts is a faith leader... Or a member of a religious institution, the legal consequences may include the withdrawal of the perpetrator's professional license as a faith leader or removal of ability to work within Scotland and in said institution or withdrawal of the institution's charity status where the institution is not otherwise regulated. Similar legislation has been prepared by the Northern Ireland Assembly prompting David Bruce when he was moderator to ask in a piece he wrote for the Belfast newsletter, is a youth leader or a minister to be prevented in law from having a loving, empathetic and compassionate pastoral conversation with a young person of faith about these questions? Can they pray together about these matters? We pray about the most personal aspects of our lives, from relationships to career choices. Why then should ministers and leaders be prevented from praying with members of our churches who seek it simply because their request to talk involves their sexuality? Perhaps the legislation here in Northern Ireland will allow for this. We don't know. But this is the direction of travel in which we are now moving in society and we need to wake up and smell the coffee. And as Christians we need to challenge those who are hell-bent on imposing their secular creed on people of faith. And the first thing we will do is to pray. Pray to pray for their hearts to be changed because that's what the Bible instructs us to do. Paul says we are to pray for kings and for all who are in high positions that we may have peace both to proclaim and to live the gospel. But what if they're not willing to change? What if they resolutely refuse to repent? What if they persist in their evil and their wickedness? Do we just shrug our shoulders? No, we don't. Because when those who rule over us set themselves over against the commands of God, we are then to pray, as David does here, that they will fall by their own counsels and that because of the abundance of their transgressions, they will be cast out. Dale Ralph Davis, in a commentary on this psalm in a book entitled The Way of the Righteous and the Mock of Life, puts it like this, We may wish prayer could be all courtesy and finesse, If so, we've no business messing with the Psalms. Prayer must often have a hard edge about it because it has to deal with evil. And he's right, because we are in a warfare. And it's not against flesh and blood, as Paul tells us. It's against the, the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The ultimate downfall of the wicked will come, of course, with the return of Jesus, when he, as Paul tells us in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, will come from heaven to grant relief to his suffering saints and to punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, We are to pray, as David does, for the downfall of the wicked. And as Jesus did when he taught his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. David prays for himself that he may be guided. He prays for his enemies that they may be judged. And then thirdly, he prays for his fellow believers. Look at verse 11. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. Do you see what he's praying for? He's praying that his fellow believers will have joy even though they're facing wickedness and evil. Even though they're being assaulted on every side by lies and deceit, he prays that they will find joy in God. And notice how inclusive his prayer is, because he's praying this for all his fellow believers. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the former century, has a sermon in this text in which he says this, A touch of enthusiasm would be the salvation of many a man's religion. Some Christians are good enough people, they are like wax candles, but they're not lit. Oh, for a touch of flame. And then he says this, and I just love the way he puts it You, Miss Much Afraid over yonder, you are to rejoice. You, Mr. Despondency, hardly daring to look up, you must yet learn to sing. As for Mr. Ready to Halt, he must dance in his crutches, and feeble mind must play the music for him. It is the mind of the Holy Spirit that those who take refuge in the Lord should rejoice before him. Biblical religion, be it that of Old Testament saints or be it that of New Testament saints, is characterized by joy. This is one of the things Jesus prayed for his disciples in his great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He said, Holy Father, now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. It's what Paul taught those first generation believers in the churches that he established on his successive missionary journeys. Rejoice always, he says to the Thessalonians. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Again, Charles Spurgeon puts it like this He says, When a person comes to God in Christ and says, This Savior is my Savior, this Father is my Father, this God is my God, then he has everything and he must be joyful. He has no fear about the past. God has forgiven him. He has no distress about the present for the the Lord is with him. He is not afraid about the future for the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's David's prayer for his fellow believers. Let them rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Let them exult in you. We've seen then where we're to begin. What we're to see how we're to come, what we're to ask. And fifthly and lastly, we learn from David who we are to trust. If you're not a Christian this morning, then let me encourage you to look very closely at the closing verses of this psalm because they tell you what a believer is. Verse 11, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. A little further in the same verse, those who love your name. Or verse 12, the righteous. Let me put those together. Anyone who takes refuge in God by putting their trust in Christ is declared righteous. Anyone who loves his name comes under his protection and blessing. And he or she, verse 12, will be covered with favor as with a shield. Augustus Toplady serves as a curate in the village of Blagdon in Somerset. He's said to have been out one day walking near the village when he was caught in a very severe thunderstorm. Above him was the rocky landscape of Burrington Combe, complete with crags and cliffs and caves. And there he took refuge in the cleft of a rock until the storm had passed. And out of that experience came the hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. That rock, of course, for Augustus' Toplady was Christ. So he says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side, which flowed, be of sin, the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. That's what happens when we take refuge in Christ. And the righteousness that is then given to us in him covers us like a shield. Not only in life, but also in death. Which is what Top Lady comes back to in the closing verse of his hymn. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyelids close in death, When I soar through tracks unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. When the foundations are being destroyed, as they undoubtedly are in our nation, what can the righteous do? This psalm instructs us as to what we're to do. It tells us where we're to begin in the place of prayer. It tells us what we're to see about God and about ourselves. It tells us how we're to come, as always, by grace, through faith. It tells us what we're to ask for ourselves, for our enemies, for our fellow believers. And it tells us who we're to trust As in the day of trouble and tribulation, we take refuge in the Lord, knowing that he will spread his protection over us and that he will be our shield and our defender because of the righteousness we have in Christ. Corrie Ten Boom, who was sent to a concentration camp in Nazi Germany because her family had helped many Jewish people to escape, put it like this. She said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the driver. And in this dark and dangerous civilizational moment in which we now find ourselves, we, as the people of God, need to learn do the same. Let's bow in prayer. Almighty and loving God, we bless you for the gift of your word. We pray now for the grace to believe what we have heard. And so to live day by day that we may demonstrate that we have taken refuge in you. That we love your name and that we are trusting in your son as our rock and our redeemer. Amen.